Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to the Monday Scramble of the Colin McEnroe Show. We've got a lot of ground we want to cover today. Uh, In just a second, we're going to be talking uh, in the waning days of the Obama presidency about the Obamas themselves and very specifically about Michelle Obama uh, with the author of the book, The Obamas. Uh, We'll also be talking a little bit later to a scholar who is making some explicit comparisons to the way in which journalists covered the rise of fascism in Europe, the rise of Hitler and Mussolini, uh, mistakes that were made and whether uh, we should try to learn from them. You know, it's that tricky thing of kind of knowing that the pot of water is going to boil before it starts boiling and also not claiming that it's going to start boiling if it's not. Uh, anyway, we'll talk to uh, John Broick about that. And then lastly, uh, a story we'll be covering all week long, the fast tracking of cabinet uh, approvals in the Senate, uh, absent some of the usual requisite uh, vetting and uh, Office of Government Ethics uh, reports and financial disclosures and all, you know, all those little things uh, that make a cabinet appointment so much fun. So uh, I want to begin just with uh, some thoughts of my own. This will be really quick, but um, I've been thinking a lot anyway about art uh, and creativity uh, and the roles that they play, especially in troubled times. I mean, one thing we know kind of as a certainty is that art will outlast empires, whether it's Rilke, Redon, Rachmaninoff. They move us today, although most of us would be hard-pressed to describe the political regimes under which they functioned. So remember, the art of Meryl Streep will be devoured and relished long after Donald Trump ceases to matter. I find that comforting. Last night at the Golden Globes, Streep reminded us of some of the other functions of art. One of those is to tell us that we are not alone. In your cubicle, in your car, at your kitchen table, you are not alone with your worries about what is to come. Another function of the artist, I think especially in a secular society, is to be some amalgam of prophet, fool, and speaker of truth. We revere the memory of Joseph N. Welch standing up to Joe McCarthy in 1954 with those words that still ring like morning bells. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? Streep, last night at the Golden Globes, she was our Joseph N. Welch, and we're going to need a new one, a new Joe Welch, almost every day for the next four years. As she accepted her award, she spoke, often tearfully, about her own worries at this moment. There was one performance this year that stunned me. It it sank its hooks in my heart, not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it, but it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It it kind of broke my heart. And I saw it, and I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. And this instinct 
to humiliate when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful. It filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Of course, she didn't mention his name. Everybody knew who she was talking about, including he himself. Uh, he was tweeting about her uh, this morning, recognizing himself in those words. Those are the kinds of words that need to be spoken right now. I've seen people on social media criticizing Streep for using her fame to speak divisively, you know, at a entertainment award ceremony. Imagine that, a famous person using celebrity to increase divisions in our society. Where have I heard about that before? The only division Streep was emphasizing was the one between right and wrong. Uh, here are the words of Italo Calvino in Invisible Cities. The inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the inferno where we live every day, that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many, accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of inferno are not inferno, and then make them endure. Give them space. That's Calvino. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the 1930s and the risk of accepting the inferno. For now, I just want to say that the arts will be inseparable from our political conversations in the coming four years, because the arts are part of what is not inferno and therefore what must endure. For what it's worth, artists may outlive their political particulars of their times, but they're rarely untouched. Rachmaninoff had to flee from Russia to Helsinki in an open sled with his family and what valuables they could carry. Redon's genius was interrupted by military service in the Franco-Prussian War. Rilke, typically a little harder to pin down as he wandered Europe in the grip of poetry and visions of angels. But we know that he was very nearly pressed into service on the German side of World War I. But each of these creators can, from a great distance of time, just buckle our knees with their art. I mean, go to the Yale Art Gallery and look at Redon's uh, nasturtiums, and, and that'll happen. And so it goes also with Meryl Streep. Fifty years from now, she will be just blowing people away. People will be watching her act uh, and have the same reaction. Right now, we need her power and her durability. We need the voices of a thousand others like her to say who and what are not the inferno. All right, time to move on. I think actually uh, we may be talking about one of those voices like in about, I don't know, 90 seconds or so. Uh, Jody Cantor is joining us, New York Times correspondent and author of The Obamas. Uh, Jody Cantor, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So you've um, uh, written recently uh, in The New York Times very specifically about Michelle Obama and what her role might be. Uh, after uh, after the Obamas leave office. We should say that a new edition of your book, uh, The Obamas, is going to be released, I believe, tomorrow. Um, so let's talk a little bit uh, about that. But I think first, one of the things you cover in the book, and maybe in a way that others have not, is what Michelle Obama's role in the Obama administration for the last eight years has been. And, and there's there are things that we saw and things that we didn't see Although I think the things that you report on that we didn't see, I don't know, sometimes they're treated as 
shocking or surprising. I, I don't find them particularly surprising. They seem like kind of normal extensions of the personality we know. But but tell us more about that. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me with you. Um, and second of all, you know, I like the way you lay it out because I agree with you that there is a connection between what we saw happening with Michelle Obama in the White House and what I discovered in my reporting and the question of who she is going to be and wants to be in the post-presidency. So here what, here's what I would say about her time in the White House. Michelle Obama is an enormously successful and respected first lady. And Part of the way she coped with a very tough job in the White House was kind of to edit herself in public. Um, being First Lady has really never been um, an easy task. And being the first African-American First Lady um, during a time of real partisan attack in Washington was an incredible challenge. And so part of the way she went about it is that she was extremely strategic about her choices. The real Michelle Obama, the Michelle Obama that um, Chicagoans remember, that her family, her aides describe, she is um, a brilliant Harvard-trained lawyer. She's somebody who really knows how to make an argument. Um, She's warm, but she can also be really forceful. She's kind of, you know, a social critic who has her own observations about the world. As first lady, for a long time, we watched her kind of edit herself. I wouldn't say there's anything fake about who she was on the public stage as first lady. It all seemed very authentic. But it was just one part of who she was. She called herself the mom in chief. She spent a lot of time in the garden. She took on issues that were not really controversial. She gave a lot of... um, you know, she did a lot of kind of uplifting uh, work as First Lady. She was reluctant to criticize other people, to get involved in the fray, et cetera, et cetera. And that worked really well for her. There's this kind of contradiction to being First Lady where the less explicitly political you seem, the more political influence you have in, in things like convention speeches. So the fact that, you know, in her convention speeches and other political appearances, she would say things like, Look, I don't want to get involved in the partisan fray. I'm really here because I want a better future for our children. I'm appealing to these really universal values. Um, you know, I don't want to get trapped in the muck of politics. Um, uh, paradoxically, that is part of what made her politically uh, very, very effective. Now, I would say that that came with a price, which is that the real Michelle Obama is a fuller and deeper and even more original person uh, than the one we have seen as First Lady. And so I, 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 I and, and by the way, I don't mean, you know, I see myself as a, a reporter and a storyteller. And by saying any of this, I'm not criticizing um, anything she did as First Lady. And a lot of what my book is, is showing the, the behind the scenes of how and why she had to take that tack. It shows um, her trying to get adjusted to the job of First Lady, the really restrictive conditions of the White House. You'll see a lot of behind the scenes about how, you know, she was um, criticized even for things like what she wore or how she and her husband went on date date night. Um, You'll see that there was also a personal layer to all of this. Um, Family life in the White House is much harder to conduct. uh, than uh, then, then, uh, it appears. So she basically chose kind of 
like safe passage through a really difficult assignment. Now, um, what I think we may be beginning to see, although we'll have to wait a lot longer, and the First Lady has, I think, a lot of tricky choices on this count, is that we're beginning to see a little more of Michelle Obama reemerge. If you saw her goodbye speech on Friday, it was really impassioned and it was really direct. She never said the name Donald Trump. Um, she never attacked him. But she talked very directly to young people. Um, she gave this kind of tribute to the power of American diversity. Um, she is a real believer in the idea that it doesn't matter um, who your parents are, where, you know, which sector of society you come from. What matters is your own self-determination and hard work. She exhorted young people to build a country worthy of their promise. She told them more than once, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. She said, you hear me. Um, do not be afraid. So I would say the question that I have about her post-presidency, based on observing her for all of these years, and also talking to aides about this, is which tack does she take? Does she go the kind of Laura Bush route of being very above it all and very politic, um, which many aides think she will do? Uh, there are a lot of good reasons uh, to go that route. Or are we going to learn even more about who Michelle Obama is, what her views really are. Um, you know, is she going to want to meet the Trump moment? In a way, is it going to be impossible for her to resist? Um, she will know that a very large section of the country will want to hear from her, um, and that can be a very hard thing to say no to. Yeah, I, I first of all, one of the things that you document, it's well known. I mean, there's there's a way in which she's earned enough credit so that she can say some things that would have been very difficult or that were very difficult to say in 2008 and 2009. You know, famously, uh, as you've documented, she got in a lot of trouble uh, at the beginning. She said, uh, for the first time in my adult life, I'm really proud of my country because it feels like hope is finally making a comeback. You know, in particular, it was that phrase for the first time in my life. Although I think that's really interesting, particularly when you uh, uh, put it against something another Michelle said very, very recently. That's Michelle Norris from uh, from National Public Radio, who I think la two Sundays ago said something to the effect that the problem with Make America Great Again for African-Americans and other people of color is the word again, uh, that in many respects, just in the same way that Michelle Obama is saying for the first time, uh, that word again, they're both sort of chronological adverbs, and they both refer to the same thing, which is that there isn't for people of color, in many cases, this halcyon period that existed four or five decades ago when things were better, things were worse. Things have almost always been worse than they were up to the present minute. And and so I, I, that was a very truthful thing that she said. She just hadn't built enough, uh, up enough credit in the bank with people in, in 2009 to say something like that or 2008 and, and get away with her and not have a lot of pushback. But now, after eight years of, I really think, conducting herself pretty superlatively, it's hard to find anything, at least publicly, that she's ever done that you could find fault with. And she's just been the epitome of grace and good cheer and fun. You know, there isn't another first lady who would go on, you know, the Jimmy Fallon show and do mom dances, you know, effectively and incredibly with Jimmy Fallon. She's She's been remarkable. I feel like she's got, you know, the kind of stature where... It will be a shame, Jody, if she doesn't use some of that to speak to some of the indignities and potential harms of the present moment. 
Well, so here's the thing that's really going to change, I think, when she leaves the White House. Um, aside from, you know, not technically being the current First Lady of the United States anymore, I'd say the bigger one is that there will be no liability for her, her husband's political career mm-hmm. anymore. Um, Barack Obama has been has held elected office um, for most of their marriage, right? I mean, first he was in the Illinois State Senate, and then he was in the United States Senate. Now he's the president of the United States. And throughout that period, um, Michelle Obama has really had to de- defer to his career in a number of ways. One of them was kind of in planning her own career. I mean, she put her career on hold uh, to become first lady, which is not actually a paid position or a real job. It's a ceremonial position. But also she had to be really careful um, about what she said and more and more careful as he ascended politically. So for the first time in the post-presidency, we're really going to be asking the question, well, what would Michelle Obama say if there's no longer um, a direct political downside um, to what her husband says. However, I still think the calculation will be a little harder than um, the way you depict it because because Michelle Obama has been relatively restrained in her remarks, successful political figures often become kind of canvases upon which we project whatever we want to hear, right? And because she hasn't weed into a lot of controversial topics, she hasn't, I'm sure we know that privately she's grappled, but she hasn't publicly grappled with a lot of the most difficult issues that our society um, faces today. It means that she hasn't said that much um, that people can disagree with. And if she starts to do that again, um, she may, uh, she may, she certainly could pay um, a, a price for it. We're in a really raucous point um, in American politics where the country feels, you know, more divided and polarized than ever. Twitter is absolutely poisonous at time, at times. And also keep in mind that this is. Um, a woman who really is subject to um, a considerable number of, you know, racist statements. Oh, yeah. Well, all, really, all you have to do is like, Really yeah. revolting declarations, yeah. even at the height of her popularity. Well, Car- I mean, who's that guy? Carl Palladino? Yeah, is that his name? I mean, who, exactly. He compared her to a mountain gorilla within the last two or three weeks. Exactly. And that's even at a moment where, as you say, she's kind of been bathed in public adulation, right? And, you know, you said a few minutes ago, it's almost hard to criticize um, anything she's done. And yet, you know, that that is still... Um, but those people still, are always going to be is, there. That is still... Yeah. That is still the response you get. So, so what I wrote about in my book was this really conscious decision on her part to draw back, to be strategic, and I think in a way to almost take refuge in the role of first lady, right? Because when you're first lady, you 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 can always say, look, I'm not the president. You know, I'm not the one making policy decisions. I don't hold elected office. The American public, you know, doesn't choose me. Um, to be in charge. And again, you know, you'll see, um, you remember from reading the book, you know, all of these times um, when, uh, you know, she really did not want to be sort of a liability, um, you know, for her husband and, and found out that even relatively innocuous things like taking vacations um, could be uh, fodder for very blistering attacks that could potentially hurt her husband's 
initiative. Although um, th- that kind of thing happens to all first families and their vacations. And I think the Carl Paladinos of this world who are just buckets of scum, you know, they're always going to be there no matter what. I'll, I'll tell you what struck me, even listening again to that Meryl Streep quote from last night. There's a moment where she says something like, it kind of broke my heart and I can't get it out of my head. Now, listen to Michelle Obama. This is from this summer. She's talking about Trump. She says, I can't believe that I'm saying a candidate for the United uh, for the president of the United States has bragged about sexually assaulting women. And I have to tell you that I can't stop thinking about this. It's almost word for word what Streep said uh, last night. And I think you hear in those that's a pretty formal declaration. I have to tell you, I can't stop thinking about this. That's a pretty direct statement. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that, Michelle Obama, uh, in the in the months and years ahead. I really hope we do. Well, I think what you're talking about is really the incredible and you know really dramatic circumstances under which the Obamas are leaving office. If you think about the inauguration that all of us are going to be watching next week, we're going to be watching Barack and Michelle Obama hand over the keys of their home to um, Donald Trump, who spread smears uh, about the president and where he was born, um, who is going to try to dismantle pretty much everything the Obamas work to do. And so there's going to be this sort of great moment of ceremony um, and dignity in Washington. And, you know, our country prides itself on a peaceful transfer of power. And yet the Obamas are going to be leaving um, a White House in in which you know the president's legacy is 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 going to be challenged, and they're going to have a president um, whose um, positions they object to so so deeply. So I, I you know if Hillary Clinton um, was going to be the president, if another kind of Republican was going to be the president, I'm not sure um, we would be asking the same questions about Michelle Obama. I bet she would be headed towards like a much more traditional kind of post-presidency period. Um, but I think you're, I think you're probably right that she will likely feel uh, a great deal of temptation to weigh in. But you know, I'll take your question and go a little further with it because let's talk about what that could really mean for her and what direction she would go in. One of the motifs of the Obama story is that the president in particular has always been caught between these two conflicting impulses, right? On the one hand, he's certainly a Democrat. He certainly believes in progressive causes. He's um, fought very hard to enact and protect his policies. Um, And we know that in a way the last couple of years have made him more partisan by necessity because it's been impossible to kind of unify the country to create bipartisan consensus uh, in Washington. And he's been forced to play play his side of the net and to um, defend democratic policies. However, we also know that his natural instinct is to be a unifier. Right. And to kind of transcend the original Barack Obama that most of us met on the public stage in 2004 when he rose to power was the guy who said, I don't want there to be there is no red or blue America. There's united um, states uh, of America. He made the case that Republicans and Democrats don't um, have that uh, don't uh, that our differences are not as great um, as we often say. So. 
I think the and I think this is, by the way, just as much a question for the president as Mrs. Obama. And maybe we'll get a hint of his answer tomorrow night when he gives this big farewell address. Absolutely, uh, Jody Kinder. Uh, Jody Kinder. Yeah. As president, but, Jody Kinder. We're going to have to pause it right there. Sure. Uh, we've got another segment coming in. We've been talking to Jody Kinder. Uh, her book about the Obamas. Uh, we'll have a new edition coming out tomorrow. The Obamas by Jody Kinder. We've got to go to a break right now. We'll be back after this. You're a great lady, yes you are. Michelle, Michelle Obama, 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 Obama. You're a wonderful woman. So a couple of email, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from a listener uh, who was really upset. Uh, not so much with me or us, but with Peter Sagal of all things, and mad at Public Radio too because there was some kind of uh, wait, 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 don't tell me promo that had made some kind of joke about the Democrats over-obsessing about Donald Trump, President-elect Donald Trump. And uh, he didn't think this was something you could joke about. He also didn't think it was possible uh, to over-worry about something like this. And so, I don't know, we kind of emailed back and forth. I was trying to placate him, also saying, look, it's a comedy show. And he said, you wouldn't be saying this about Hitler or Mussolini. And without even really thinking about it too much, I wrote back and I said, yeah, but I mean, at this point, Trump is not Hitler or Mussolini. I mean... You can't really say that, right? But it's something we think about all the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I know there are people out there who voted for Trump, and they don't think about that. But a lot of us think about it. And the point kind of is that by the time somebody is Hitler or Mussolini, it's too late to call attention to the fact that they're Hitler or Mussolini. You want to point to the pot that's about, about to boil over before it starts to boil over, not when it's boiling over. But the big question is, is this a pot that's about to boil over? How do you know that? Uh, well, it turns out that somebody has been thinking a lot more constructively and a lot harder about it than I have. Uh, John Broek is Associate Professor of History at Case Western Reserve University and a Brit British Empire historian. He's the author of London, Water and the Making of the Modern City and the forthcoming Squadron. Um, he's done a couple of articles that are germane to this uh, during the campaign before the election of Donald Trump. Uh, he actually talked to uh, historians uh, and and professors who specialize in fascism or even teach courses with names like comparative fascism about whether or not that comparison was apt. And then more recently, uh, for The Conversation and then Smithsonian Magazine, uh, he wrote a piece about how journalists covered the rises of Mussolini and Hitler. I think we're going to start with that piece, the more recent piece, uh, and, uh, and then maybe we kind of work backwards towards that other piece, which is also very interesting. So, uh, John Broek, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thanks very much, Mr. McEnroe. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk history. All right. So you looked at actual press coverage, particularly by the American press, the Western press, the American press, as they're covering the rise of these two peculiarly and differently charismatic leaders in uh, Italy and Germany. Um, and I mean, the first question is, did the press get it right? And I, in most of the examples that you cite, not really. It seemed as though they, I mean, the 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 word of the moment is normalized. It seemed like they normalized something that maybe was less normal than they realized. Yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly what happened. I mean, there, the, the fascist movement of the early 20s was new. You know, there was no Mussolini or Hitler uh, to compare uh, these guys to. Uh, what, what happened was I was researching my next book, which is about World War II in 1941, and one of the main themes of that book is that that was 
a moment when much of the world had a choice about whether to fight the Axis, which had, until that moment had been racking up victories, or whether to fight uh, with them or against them. And in, and in retrospect, we know which side we'd choose. Uh, so my job as an historian is to help the reader imagine a moment when the choice to fight was not obvious. And my hand fell on a National Geographic article by a man named Douglas Chandler in 1937, which was a, an adoring, uh, loving portrait of Hitler's Berlin. This is 1937. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Nazis had been crushing dissent and arresting many thousands of their political opponents for years already by that time. So when, as you said, late last year, this language of normalization began bouncing around, I, I naturally thought of the 1937 pay-on to uh, Berlin in National Geographic, as well as the fact that the UK and US press had been downright enthusiastic about Mussolini. Um, and I, so I hit the library and did my homework, and the result was that article that really seemed uh, to to speak to people. Um, and as I said, there was no Mussolini until there was Mussolini. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, they he was a press darling. Um, right. the, the New York Times uh, commonly credited uh, fascism in Italy with returning turbulent Italy to what it called normalcy, to quote from your normalcy. article. Normalcy. I found that normalcy word in multiple articles. Um, and the idea was, well, these these black shirts are a bit, uh, this is actually a quote, a bit rough in their methods, mm -hmm. but they're better than those Bolsheviks. They're better than the left. Mm -hmm. And they're going to bring back order to the streets. And you know, order was the, the, the name of the day, and the American press was enthusiastic about it. Really. Make, make, make Italy great again. Uh, uh, yes. We'll stop. Yeah. So uh, well, I thought one of the more chilling uh, pieces or sections of your article uh, was from had to do with Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy Thompson, just an acclaimed journalist of her era, uh, and this should do nothing to diminish her star. I think at one yeah. point she was uh, identified as the by Time Magazine as the second most influential woman in America behind Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, but she uh, initially judged Hitler a man of quote startling insignificance in writing about him in 1928. Uh, but um, then she wrote this um, about what, about seven years later, I think, wrote this thing that, boy, just could could come from today. She wrote, no people ever recognize their dictator in advance. He never stands for election on the platform of dictatorship. He always represents himself as the instrument of the incorporated national will. Uh, she said, when our dictator turns up, you can depend on it, that he will be one of the boys and he will stand for everything traditionally American. Uh, well, I mean, she could be right or wrong about the present moment. And that's one of the difficulties, John, is that, you know, when there's when there was no there had been no Mussolini, it was hard to recognize Mussolini. But in some ways, it's always like that. Right. We could be looking at a moment like that or we could be looking at a much more commonplace turn of politics in America. No, you're right. And, and you're, you're you're right that Dorothy Thompson was an amazing figure. And I encourage everyone to learn about her. Uh, but but to her credit, she learned from that that earlier moment uh, when she thought he was of startling insignificance. Um, and then she she used her historical experience to inform her her critical thinking. And and that's that's what what history offers. I mean, we we, we 
we're we're not at all prepared to say that Trump is Hitler or Trump is Mussolini, but we know from history, we, we use history to think hard. We use history to think harder about the sort of things that can happen. That's what's so, so great about it. I mean, you raised a beautiful opening with Calvino and the, the potential of arts and humanities. And look, that's why I'm so pleased about the reach of this, this article. It's not that it, it glorified me or delivered my polemic. It's straight, simple history, really. And people grabbed it, and they, they saw how to take history and compare it to today's context. No two historical contexts are alike, and I think readers could see that, but they clearly used history to think about what they saw around them because history is just great for thinking with. Yeah, I, I thought uh, your article obviously widely circulated, started in one place, appeared in another. Uh, a lot of people have read it. A lot of people have commented. In fact, a lot some people uh, were commenting on your article. Something that I comes up from time to time, I've forgotten about it, that the, the New York Times also totally whiffed on Stalin. Uh, I believe the guy's name was Walter Durante, something like that, a guy who was sort of over there <laughs> covering Stalin and completely glossing over all this stuff that was really horrible and scary about him. And that, I mean, that does bring up the fact that, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism uh, of the press, of the news media uh, over the course of the last 18 to 24 months. Um, and, and and some of it's justified. We don't always get it exactly right. And some sometimes a guy who looks like a buffoon or a guy who looks benign or a guy who looks like we can plug him into our matrix of understanding how politics has worked and then is going to work, sometimes that person is an anomaly, is a real outlier. And and the press isn't good at spotting outliers. The press is probably much better at spotting, John, what it knows. Exactly. You know, how does the media deal with an outlier figure like this? If somebody had read Mein Kampf in 1925, they might have been called crazy if they had made a prediction that this fellow was going to act on the things he said. Or they might have said he was crazy, even if they had said that in 1933 or 1934. So... You know, so where do we go from here? Um, you know, as you said, we're entering a period with an executive branch unlike anything we've seen. Uh, and the mainstream media has been caught flat-footed um, at best. And on the other hand, you might say they can't break their addiction uh, to covering the sensational things this figure keeps saying. And maybe there's little reason, uh, given the deep-seated conditions of the media industry to expect their coverage to become whip smart like Dorothy Thompson did. So that means that viewers and listeners and readers are going to have to build their sort of critical muscles. Uh, you know, again, that's why people seized on my article. It's why people will need to read history, philosophy, classics, Italo Calvino, poli sci, <laughs> because these are all antidotes for fake news. Uh, and, and young people should think about picking up one of these majors in college to sort of inoculate themselves. Uh, you know, we're not going to change the fundamentals of the commercial press uh, overnight, but it could be that college teachers like me are going to have to consider the wider world outside uh, the cloister or quad, their classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are deep-seated fundamentals in, in, in my avocation, too, that have discouraged people like me from talking to folks on the street. Uh, we're not trained in accessible writing and styles of arguing. Uh, our promotion and tenure standards 
mm-hmm. don't award it and make scholars sort of too busy to engage in it too. And, and you know, I'll give my plug for the conversation.com and my editor, Emily Costello there. It's a, it's a special thing. It's a, it's a news source from scholarly experts, non-commercial supported by foundations and scholars contribute their writing for free. And a scholar is paired with an experienced editor like, like Emily Costello, who wants to know how to, or who knows how to guide an academic in writing for a general audience. Uh, and each piece provides citations or links to sources like mine did and is then vetted by a second editor before public publication. It's a high standard of, of quality. So yeah, we're so, going to you know, actually we need all hands on board. Right. We're going to start checking that out. And thanks for your commercial right for the humanities. I think it is important. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would say, first of all, one of the reasons that um, academic writing became impenetrable, uh, as you suggested, that was partly the fault of Paul DeMant, and he turned out to be a fascist, too. So there may be a pattern here. But beyond that, I do want to say that, in all seriousness, the humanities are going to be really important. I mean, Trump may have the unintended uh, effect of making the humanities important. You're, we're going to have to learn to think philosophically and in terms of political science about questions about you know whether government employees should uh, rebel against an executive who's telling them to defy the law or the Geneva Conventions or whatever. And so uh, professors like John Broich are going to be uh, incredibly important in terms of shaping people's conscience, consciences and sensibilities. We're going to take a quick break here. That was John Broich, Associate Professor of History at Case Western Reserve University. Let's keep in mind that Western Reserve used to belong to Connecticut. Try to keep it clean in case we want it back. Uh, and a British Empire historian. He's the author of London, Water and the Making of the Modern City, and the forthcoming Squadron. Uh, we thank him. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about something right of the moment, and that is the coming cascade of cad- cabinet confirmations. Wow, that was a lot of alliteration. I just kind of did that. You look at some of the early coverage of Darth Vader, and it's like, what are the chances this nozzle face is really going to build a Death Star? Just didn't see him coming. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Filthy Fisher. The part of Bill Carey was played by Hugh Laurie. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, a salute to human guinea pigs. And now. Back to Colin. That's right. That's the people who test things that haven't been used on you on themselves or arrange to have those things tested or agree to have those things tested. Hey, before we get to Sean, just a quick thing about Wednesday. So Wednesday is going to be the long-awaited uh, Trump, Trump press conference scheduled at the moment for 11 o'clock. We've decided to scrap the plans that we had and put together a kind of quick twitch react uh, to that press conference, assuming it doesn't run into our time period. But we don't start till one. Come on. <laughs> Wrap it up by then. So anyway, we're uh, putting together some uh, rapid responders, including former U.S. Senator and Governor Lowell Weicker will be part of our uh, rapid response team. So that's pretty classy, right? Uh, so uh, make sure you're with us at 1 p.m. Uh, or thereabouts, assuming he ever shuts up uh, in his press conference, and we'll, uh, we'll tell you what we think he just said. All right, so speaking of that, it's all kind of tied together, really. Uh, Sean Sullivan, congressional reporter for The Washington Post, is here to talk about uh, what's on the congressional calendar, confirmation-wise. Uh, and a lot, it turns out. There's a lot going on Tuesday and Wednesday uh, as we, uh, well, as in fact there's an attempt being made to push through an awful lot of confirmable cabinet appointments. 
appointments. So, Sean Sullivan, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me, Colin. And, and so uh, there's a lot of stops on this railroad. John Kelly, Jeff Sessions, Rex Tillerson, Ma- Mike Pompeo, Elaine Chow, Betsy DeVos, uh, Ben Carson, and Wilbur Ross. Is it possible all of those are going to be com- confirmed before Thursday? You know, it is It is possible, and it's, it's at least likely that, you know, these hearings will, uh, will happen um, in short order, Republicans want to get as many of Trump's nominees confirmed as possible. Not first, they have to go through these hearings before these committees where they're going to get grilled by Democratic senators. Uh, and then after that, um, then comes, you know, a vote on the Senate floor. But you're right. You know, there's a host of hearings this week. As many as seven nominees could go before their uh respective committees on the Hill and face these Democratic senators. And this is happening against the backdrop of a lot of other news. You know, Obama's giving, uh, President Obama's giving his farewell address tomorrow. And then, of course, Donald Trump, the president-elect, is going to give a press conference uh, on Wednesday. So, you know, I think some Republicans are hopeful that if there are hiccups with some of these hearings, they'll come at a time when there's a lot of other news happening and potentially it won't dominate the news cycle. Right. So let's talk about sort of uh, some of the hiccups. And some of the hiccups uh, are not anticipatable. I mean, obviously, nominees are coached for their hearings, but the, there'll be attempts to bring up things that the nominees don't want to talk about. But, Sean, even before we get there, we have the whole question of whether or not they've kind of done the paperwork. I mean, there's a certain amount of paperwork that they are expected to do, both in terms of uh, of financial filings and, and other stuff that's required by the Office, Office of Government Ethics. And a lot of them they haven't gotten their homework done, right? Yeah, you know, we heard from the uh, Office of Government Ethics, which is an independent watchdog group, which takes uh, care of some of reviewing some of the ethical uh, hoops that these nominees have to jump through. Uh, And in a letter last week, the head of that office uh, told Democratic senators that, you know, he was very concerned because these nominees did not uh, submit the required ethics information, uh, or at least that it had not been completed, um, you know, uh, before these hearings are taking place. And remember, a lot of Trump's nominees are people who are new to government, are people that come from the business world, are people who don't necessarily have uh, the experience, you know, going through this stuff. And they're not, you know, in the system, so to speak, um, like, say, a congressman or uh, a congresswoman might be. So this is a process that I think is new to a lot of them. And, uh, you know, this ethics watchdog is uh, raising concerns about that. Now, Republicans are saying, look, we're full steam ahead. We're going to go through this. Remember, we confirmed President Obama's nominees in short order. Democrats are just playing politics here. Uh, Trump won the election. He deserves to have his team in place. And we're not going to slow down in doing that. Well, yeah, although, first of all, um, Eric Holder, I think, was slowed down a little bit uh, before he was confirmed. But beyond that, you know, as you no doubt know, one of the things that's circulating around quite a bit on the Internet today is a letter. I mean, what you just said is pretty close to what Mitch McConnell, uh, the leader of the Senate, has been saying, you know, you know, they lost the election. So now they don't want to confirm the nominees. But the problem with that is there's this letter from him to Harry Reid in 2009 in which he demanded 
means exactly the things. All the T's crossed, all the I's dotted, all the disclosure forms and ethics stuff, all the stuff that he says is kind of skatable by right now is stuff that he was stamping his foot and saying had to be done in 2009. I mean, this should not shock us or surprise us that political parties swap sides based on whether their ox is being gored or not. But I assume, you know, waving that around in his face is going to have some effect, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's certainly should not be any surprise that this happens when the roles are reversed uh, in government. You see Democrats do things when they're in the majority that they would never do when they're in the minority, and you see Republicans take the same um, kind of actions. And one thing that I think is important to keep in mind with all this is that the Republicans have the numbers to pass uh, to, to clear these nominees when it, when they come to a full Senate floor vote. And the reason why is that uh, Harry Reid, as a Democrat, when he was uh, the leader of the Senate, uh, did what was referred to as the nuclear option with these executive branch nominees and allowed them to be confirmed on a simple majority. So it's not like, you know, these nominees are going to need to clear a 60-vote threshold. 51 votes, 50 votes. Um, you know, that will be enough to get these nominees confirmed. And I think McConnell, um, you know, wants to get this done as fast as possible. But if you're the Democrats, you know, the, the longer this drags out, the more you can draw attention to some of the unflattering aspects of these candidates' records, uh, the more effective politically they feel like they're going to be heading into the inauguration and heading into Trump's first few weeks as the president. Right. And so, you know, you were saying before that some of these people uh, are from the world outside uh, the circuit uh, of government and are perhaps less familiar uh, with uh, some of the paperwork they've got to do or some of the disclosures or haven't pulled all that stuff together. And that's certainly true about Wilbur Ross and Ben Carson and Rex Tillerson. But Jeff Sessions is no stranger to government. Uh, He's the attorney general nominee right now. Apparently, he hasn't got all this paperwork in. I mean, one of the weird things that you're apparently required to do is produce even like coverage of you, coverage of you in your other roles, you know, what has been said about you. And we know that Sessions had trouble and, I mean, was unsuccessful in getting a judgeship because of some stuff, some coverage of things that he'd said or attitudes that he might have had about race. And apparently even he hasn't handed in all this stuff. Um, I mean, I suppose it's less of a problem because he's not an unknown quantity to any of the people who might be asking questions of him in a confirmation hearing. But it does suggest that, you know, these guys don't seem that incentivized to come up with this stuff. Well, one of the interesting things uh, that's worth noting in this process is that, you know, while a lot of these uh, nominees are, as we talked about, you know, outsiders to government newcomers, they are being led by a team, and they're referred to as Sherpas in this process, uh, of people who know this deal really, really well. These are Washington interns. These are people who have worked in government before who are helping kind of guide them through the process. So even, you know, a rec- or somebody like uh, a, a Mnuchin who's coming from outside government has a team of really, really well-versed insiders who are helping deal with some of this paperwork, helping work with the Senate committees that are going to, uh, you know, have to have to meet these nominees. So, you know, all of these nominees, regardless of how much experience they have, have the people around them. Um, so there shouldn't be any misunderstanding about what's required uh, when. Um, and, you know, as you pointed out, some of Trump's nominees like Sessions, um, like, uh, you know, Congressman Pompeo, uh, Congressman Price are people that are, uh, you know, have been working in government for years and do kind of know this process well. 
And it, it does seem as though, and one of the things that Donald Trump has been, always been very good at, either as a matter of strategy or accident, is keeping you know, enough different circus rings performing at once so that it's hard to focus on the bear act in one ring. In other words, if you have a three-ring circus, it's one thing. But if you have a seven-ring circus, it's hard to focus on any one act. So if Tillerson and Mnuchin turn out to be the people who are getting some very sharply pointed questions uh, during confirmation and not answering them very well, as you suggested at the outset of our conversation, that may get submerged uh, into just the, the flow of, first of all, so many confirmations going on and a whole bunch of other pageantry and heraldry and farewells and hellos taking place. Yeah, it very well might. This is a very, very busy week of news, just, you know, in politics writ large. And you're right, if you space these confirmation hearings out and you have a situation where you have Rex Tillerson on one day and nobody else, and then you have, um, you know, somebody else the next day, uh, if there is a flub, if there is some, you know, uh, incident during one of these hearings where, you know, the nominees uh, appear to, you know, say something or do something that is not in line with what they wanted to say, then yeah, that 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 certainly dominates the news cycle more than it would when you have all of these uh, happening at once. So you do kind of, you know, reduce the risk of uh, being, you know, sunk by one bad hearing or one bad moment or something like that. And of course, you know, whatever the president-elect says at his press conference later this week is going to get huge amounts of attention um, throughout, you know, the political world. And so this could, you know, kind of be buried beneath uh, some of that uh, as well. <laughs> you said huge. Uh, all right. Uh, Sean Sullivan, a congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. Thanks. And we're going to have a huge show for you, well, tomorrow, actually, about guinea pigs, human guinea pigs. But also, uh, make sure you're with us on Wednesday. We are going to try to react in real time uh, to what Sean was just talking about, the president-elect's press conference. We'll have Lil Weicker and others on our team to parse what gets said. So make sure you're with us on Wednesday for a wild and woolly day. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, Kion Wolf, and everybody else who helped out today.